virtually every sub-Saharan African country has a higher percentage of population under the age of 25 than any European country, which basically means if you get in, the chances of that market growing over the next 20 years are very, very high. in foreign markets. This is Steve here speaking. And you all know by now, our aim here in this podcast is to help every one of us working on foreign markets to succeed. But what if we fail sometimes because we choose the wrong markets to get into? We tend to go for markets that are culturally close to what we know. But what if the best opportunities came from the most underlooked markets. Have you been considering Africa or India as potential target markets to expand into? Well, today I'm welcoming Zach Selch, global sales mentor who spent 35 years leading international sales for various companies. He shed some light into why you should expand into markets like Africa where your competitors don't go to unlock true international growth. Hi, Zach. Thank you so much for being here on the International Corner Podcast. How are you doing today? I am great. Thanks for having me. Of course. My pleasure. Perhaps before digging into today's matter, can you start by introducing yourself to the audience and why you think your experience is relevant to this podcast? Great. Well... So um, I, I basically spent about 35 years as a director and VP of international sales for various companies. And then uh, about 18 months ago, I, I started my own business. I quit my job, started my own business. And what I do is I coach international sales managers. So my clients are typically uh, VPs of international sales, and they're people who are tasked with entering new markets. Uh, and, and growing international sales. So that's basically what I do is I deal with the growth of international sales for various companies. All right. And when you say for different companies, do you have verticals or industries in particular that you're working with? Um, I, I Sort of my sweet spot, I would say, would be the 50 to $100 million manufacturing companies. Um, mm -hmm. I've done projects in the past couple of years for some really big software companies. Uh, I did a project last year for a uh, Fortune 50 consumer goods company. So I, mm -hmm. I, I do different types of projects, but really my sweet spot, the, the one I really like working with are those 50 to $100 million manufacturing companies. Understood. Prior to this conversation, we had a first talk where you were telling me that you often see companies you're working with going after the same markets and 
I would say, you know, like the markets that look a little bit more mature, maybe that we kind of always go to because it feels more close to what we already know. And, you know, we sometimes forget about more emerging markets like, I don't know, India, Africa, etc. Could you perhaps like tell us a little bit more about that trend and and why do you think that's interesting to you? Well, I I find that... um one you know one of the first things you really have to get right is targeting the right markets and and um i would almost say that everybody thinks they do it well and virtually nobody does it very well and and usually when i talk to people and they'll say oh yeah we really need help with this part of our business or that part of the business and and when i say well maybe we should rethink your targeted markets Virtually everybody goes, no, no, we're, we're good with that. We, we, you know, we thought that one through. And very often uh, people are targeting markets because they're comfortable with those markets. Like you said, they're similar to the markets they work in. Uh, I like to joke that very often I'll talk to somebody and they'll say, well, uh, the first markets I'm going after are Italy, France, and Japan. And I'll say, I bet your wife asked you to take her to Italy, France, and Japan, right? That's how you ended up mm-hmm. in those countries. And, and very often, that's that's what happens. Um, you know, here's the, the thing is that those countries, while they're rich, um, you know, you could say basically Europe as a whole is, you know, one of the, the top economies in the world. That's true. On the other hand, there, Europe as a whole is an older market in terms of the dem- demographics. Uh, it's slower in growth than Africa and India, right? So very often, and everybody's there. All of your competitors are typically going to be trying in those markets, right? So there are advantages very often to going into markets that you might not think about, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, India, parts of Asia, that kind of thing. Um, And depending on your product, now, you know, if you're selling really top of the line technology, cutting edge technology, sure, you know, Germany is probably going to be a great market for you, the UK. If you're at a point where you have products that are a little bit behind the curve, they were very, very good in the U.S. 10 years ago, and now you're seeing a little bit of a decline in sales, there's a very good chance that other markets, less traditional markets, will be fantastic for your product because they might be where the U.S. was 10 years ago. Now, I'll throw in the opposite part of this. Uh, mm-hmm. Sub-Saharan Africa is much more advanced than the U.S. in things like payments, right? You know, a, a lot of times what you've seen in Sub-Saharan Africa and India is people have bypassed landlines. They're getting rid of paper money and they're doing a lot of micro payments on their phone, which is actually more advanced in some cases than the United States, right? So these are things to think about. There, you, you don't want to just immediately think that you should be going into Italy and France because that's what you did 20 years ago. So that's a long answer to your what, question. Yeah, definitely. And there there were several points that I wanted to come back to. The, the first one being, 
you you mentioned that depending on the type of products or service that you're actually selling, that obviously some countries might be more relevant than than others, and that you shouldn't discard companies like especially African ones uh, because you might have preconceived ideas that it might not be the best target market to go after first. But I guess if I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of any founder in Western Europe, for instance, when you look at expanding, I mean, there's so many countries, right? Right. Even during your market research phase, like, you know, it it also gets easy to discard countries just because there's so many of them. So how could you assess all of them, right? You know what? That, That makes perfect sense. On the other hand, if you know what the demographic, if you know who buys your product and why they buy it, Uh, Then you go looking for places where there are a lot of people like that, right? And, you know, there are a lot of free sources that will help you figure out where to find, you know, where to find markets. I use uh, the World Bank Organization uh, Factbook a lot. I use CIA Factbook. They're both free online resources. Uh, and they, you know, so they'll help you understand the economy and the political situation and the demographics of a lot of countries. Um, you know, there those type of things you can use to do to do research. But I think um, that said, getting into a relatively large potential market where your competitors might not be and where your product might be a good fit for that market is has a lot of value and there might be costs associated with that but if you can drive a fair amount of revenue from that market then then the costs are worth it now i understand uh the hesitation but the you know i'm not i don't have the statistics for european companies (laughs) right but i can tell you that eight out of ten american companies that try to expand globally give up after a couple of years Right. And the reason they give up is they don't do a very good job of it. Right. You know, I'll, I'll talk to people and they'll say, well, you know, we tried it out and there wasn't a good market for our product. And I just don't believe that. I think they did a bad job of identifying those markets. And then when it didn't work out right away, they gave up. Right. So I think mm. you know, if you aren't willing to do the work and put a little bit of investment into figuring this out, you probably will fail. Right. But if you do that work, you know, there are lots and lots of markets out there that, that are very attractive. And that actually makes the bridge to my next question that I have around barriers to entry. Because at some point, I guess, when you're testing out or at least different hypotheses at first and trying to see, okay, which market should I go into first? You're, you know, everyone is kind of having more or less, I would say, a matrix where you put your criteria and countries or regions, uh, rather like Africa, sometimes could be rated, you know, as quite a high barrier to entry because people can say, okay, it's a little bit foreign. I don't know that much. You know, we don't have anyone from there. Infrastructure are a little bit maybe like lacking behind uh, compared to um, European, North American countries. How would you suggest that a company like tackle this, you know, and then stop thinking about how high barriers are just because of those details, but how big the potential could be for them? 
Well, so I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate here in that <laughs> very often the barrier to entry in Europe um, can be brutal, right? And my experience is, for instance, Germany, uh, almost anything I've ever sold, Germany has made a product locally to compete with me. Right. I, I virtually everything I've ever sold, there's been a German competitor. And Germany is very good at putting in place uh, regulatory limitations and restrictions that make it difficult to import a product that competes with a local uh, manufacturer. Right. So there's I've always seen a, a barrier to entry in Germany and I've had to fight with that. Now uh, for instance, I'll, I'll, you know, play, mm. talking about Germany, Germany, because Germany typically has very strong direct sales organizations, um, a lot of companies sell direct in Germany and they set up their own direct sales organization. Because of that, very often it's hard to find good distributors in Germany. Okay, So here are two barriers to entry to Germany that are very real. And on the other hand, it's a great market. It's very uh, lucrative. And I've been very successful over the years. So every market has some barriers to entry. Now, does Africa have different barriers to entry? Sure. It, you know, you have to play around with uh, being very careful about the corruption issues. Um, it might be difficult. Mm -hmm. You know, the, they might not want to pay the, the, the prices that you want them to pay. There might be additional logistics costs and so on. But depending on what you're selling, you know, very often we just forget how big some of these countries are. And virtually every sub-Saharan African country uh, has a higher percentage of population under the age of 25 than any European country country, which basically means if you mm -hmm. get in, the chances of that market growing over the next 20 years are very, very high, right? So yes, there are barriers to entry. Uh, I think there are barriers to entry to just about any country, but they almost, you know, he, he, here's the thing with the barriers to entry to Africa. Uh, there are virtually no regulatory barriers to entry in Africa. There are virtually no real, um, you know, say real solid, difficult barriers to entry. All the barriers to entry are knowledge-based, right? And knowledge, while expensive, is always something you can buy, right? So if you have the potential to sell $5 million in Africa and you need to pay a consultant $10,000 to to build that pathway for you to sell $5 million in Africa, spend the money, right? It, you know, it's not going to be more than that there. The knowledge that you need to get into Africa is out there and it's accessible for pennies on the dollar of what you're going to actually sell in Africa. So the barriers to entry into Africa are a lack of knowledge more than anything else. Talking about that, do you have uh, an example, maybe through one of the clients uh, that you supported uh, that wanted maybe to enter one of these African countries that you could share with us, you know, highlight maybe how they how they managed to overcome some of these barriers? T to be really frank, 
Um, I would not even say that, you know, I've encountered anything I'd call a barrier. I'd call them maybe speed bumps, right? Um, like typically getting mm-hmm. into, into Africa is a matter of finding the right partners. And so, so sure, I've like, I'll tell you what, I, I was getting into Nigeria a while back and I probably talked to 10 or 12 different potential partners and probably 80% of them were clearly not qualified. And then I had to, you know, the last three or so, I had to really dig into to find the right partner. But once I found the right partner, uh, everything fell into place. Um, so what did that involve? That involved probably... How did you find them? Did you find them through your, through your own network? So I'm lucky to, to work in America. I, so I work with a lot of people who work in the embassies. I have a very solid network of my own. So I reached out to people I knew. Let's say, let's put it this way. Nobody that I ended up working with came out of, directly came out of my own personal Rolodex, right? So what I did was I reached out to people I knew. Okay. I, told, I told them what I was looking for. I reached out to people at the embassies. I told them what I was looking for. I posted on LinkedIn. I looked through connections, old connections, first first and second level connections on LinkedIn until I found people who fit the profile I was looking for. Uh, now, the biggest expense was I probably went to Lagos three or four times, sat in a hotel, met with people. Uh, then I talked to their references. I talked to some people who could back up whether or not they, they knew what they were talking about. I went with a couple of them to end users to verify that their stories were good and by that i okay. picked the right the right partner and that partner ended up being a very good partner so so the barrier to entry in this case was finding the right person to work with it wasn't that did you have to go yourself to nigeria Yeah, I've been to Nigeria dozens of times. So yeah, usually I end up having to do it. And, and and somebody might see that as a barrier. They might say, well, I'm not going there. And if you're not going there, you're probably not going to be able to do business. That's true. But if you're willing to get on a plane and go to you know, Uganda, Nigeria, or, you know, Pakistan, uh, those are markets that you'll be able to, to make your way into. But without being willing to do that or without being having somebody in the company or working with a, a consultant or somebody who's willing to do it, probably you're not going to be able to do that. That's true. This, these aren't the type of markets that you can go on the Internet and find somebody easily and establish a relationship uh, remotely that way. That, though, that is true. And in that case, right, it was uh, for a product, right? So the partners helped distributing the product. Is that what that person was doing? Correct. Correct. Okay. Okay. And was that was that enough? Uh, talking about this case in particular, was finding the right partner enough to just distribute, and then that's how the client you worked for considered the country as being opened. Yeah, the, the basically getting okay. the right partner and meeting with some end users and all of that really removed any barriers to entry. And, you know, nine months later, six to nine months later, we were shipping products. So, yeah, that, that pretty much got us in. So having the right partner in these markets is, is typically the, the thing that will solve or, or re- remove any barriers to entry. What about language? Did you did you have some issues with that language barriers? 
Um, I well, I hate to say it this way, but all these countries were either essentially they were either British or French colonies. So the educated class, the business people, the government people all either speak English or French. So no, language really isn't a problem in Africa. And very frankly, a lot of the people you meet in Nigeria, Ghana, Uganda, there the level of English they speak and write is better than a lot of the people I do business with in the states on a regular basis, right? So I, I it's not not a problem. <laughs> well, that's good to know. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I probably have more. Uh, you know, I would say you know, you have more problem with language in Japan than you do in Africa. Everybody I deal with in Africa either speaks French or English very well. Right. I mean, that doesn't mean everybody does, but all the people you do business with. All right. So for you, the key, it's really to, I mean, the way you access knowledge, which sometimes can be a a little tough, but then uh, either you can have someone by someone by someone that, you know, in your network or pay for that uh, consultant that's going to help you, I guess, navigate through finding the right partner. I'll tell you a story about something I did sort of on a bet. I was having an argument with a distributor over finding a specific person in the government. And I said to him, I bet I could fly into a country I've never been in and find that person in less than 12 hours. And he was like, no, you don't understand. I've been trying to find this guy for months without any luck. So I flew into Rwanda. Now, Rwanda mm-hmm. I'd actually been in, but I hadn't been in for more than 20 years. I flew into Rwanda I went from the airport to my hotel, dropped a bag. I went to the Ministry of Health. I walked into the Ministry of Health and I had a sheet of paper. I'd had somebody write in French the term I was looking for. And I said, I'm looking for somebody who does this. And I showed it to a security guard. And within about an hour, they found me the right person in the Ministry of Health. And I was sitting and talking to him. And we talked for about you know half an hour. It was the right person. And I said, look, um, is there somebody that you're comfortable buying from? Because I'd like to find a distributor who works with you because I'd like to get into your approved vendor process. So he called up two people. He set up meetings with two different distributors. That day I met with those distributors. Before I left Rwanda, I had, I had chosen a distributor and we'd signed an LOI, right? And uh-huh. we, we were selling in that country, you know, almost immediately, right? So very often, it's a lot easier than you think it's going to be to, to find these people, talk to them and find the right contacts, right? Now, this is selling to a government, so it's a, a, a very focused customer. But let's say you're selling to... I mean, you're selling to high-tech companies. You, you can probably figure out who is selling similar software to those companies today, right? Or you're selling to hotels. You mm-hmm. can find out, figure out who is selling products to those hotels or, or whatever. Uh, but it really isn't, you know, it might be a little bit, um, it might be a little scary to think of doing something like that. But it works and, and it's not, you know, those markets are big and lucrative and open and your competitors probably aren't there, right? So 
they're worth trying to, to get into. And that's the key, right? What's best, like actually trying to get into an overcrowded market. If I talk about right. um, software, for instance, if we just look at Europe, you look at the UK, right? Like it's such an entry door for like, right. but literally everyone on earth. North America who tries to come into Europe, yeah. Asia, and then the rest of EMEA who goes through the UK before going to North America, for instance, to test out right. some ideas. Exactly, right? And and why do you want to be fighting with 10 other companies over, you know, you, you think about people who are, who are fighting over, you know, Belgium, right? Or, or Holland, right? They're very nice markets. I, lo I love Belgium. I love Holland. The food's great, right? I love bicycles. But how many people are in, in those countries and everybody wants to sell there? Right. And, and then you take a look at Uganda and nobody wants to sell there. And there's a lot more people. So <laughs> what you know, <laughs> decide what the right market is. I believe what's getting tougher is that. All right. Maybe not for product related companies, because they have to get on the ground. They have to get out there to make it happen with distributions and all. But for software companies. Right now, there's so many things you could do remotely, even global expansion. Sometimes you can sail and start doing business from your headquarter. And I believe this contributes as well to companies feeling high barriers to entry when they look at Africa, when they look at India, they know they have to get out there to make it happen. And Maybe they don't want to because of this economic context that's a little bit tougher. What are your thoughts on that? No, I, I think you're right. But that's, it comes down to, you know, what I, I want to paraphrase this and don't take offense. But when you say, oh, these markets are difficult, the people don't get on team meetings, blah, blah, blah. You're basically saying, I, I'm not willing to put the effort in for that market, right? Now, I sort of made my living going into companies and dramatically increasing sales. And it's not because of magic. It's typically because you get these companies and they haven't been trying, right? They just haven't been doing the right things for years. Now, I'll throw out some numbers, right? If you are... Let's say a hundred. You, you sell a hundred million dollars in a, in your company. Maybe your company is worth two hundred and fifty million dollars, mm -hmm. right? Now, if you increase your sales by ten million dollars, your company is probably still going to be worth about two hundred and fifty million dollars. There, there isn't going to be a huge impact on that. But if you increase your sales by ten million dollars internationally, if you go from zero to ten million dollars internationally. Now you might increase the value of your company by a hundred million dollars, mm -hmm. right? Because now you're a global player. If you increase your sales $25 million internationally, then you're, that's pretty serious. So it's worth the effort. And a lot of these companies just don't want to put in the effort, right? They, they want to do things that they say, well, we have a system of doing things. We want to do things, our system. So let's find countries that will work according to our system so we don't have to make any changes. And, um, you know, th those are the barriers to entry. If the barrier to entry for your company is that you don't want to change the way you mm -hmm. do things, 
then sure, most of the <laughs> most of the world is off limits. But if you're willing to change the way you do things, very few countries are off limits. And from an American company's perspective, we represent six percent of the world economy, something like that. Which means we're missing out. If you miss out on the rest of the world, you're missing out on ninety percent of the Absolutely. world economy. So if you're willing to make a few changes to how you do things in order to access another 90% of the world economy, and you don't want to do that, then, you know, shame on you pretty much, right? What more could I say, right? It's interesting what you're saying, because if I go back to that matrix example that I, that I mentioned earlier, it means that you're almost suggesting that while you do your, I would say, risk assessment matrix, that you shouldn't put too high, I would say, coefficients on, you know, the items of like how much you have to change your product or your, your service to get into the, the market because right. you're closing off yourself to a lot of opportunities by doing that. Yeah, you know what? I'll take a step back on that. I'll say that aside from one or two major things, I wouldn't suggest you change your product, right? If your product is able to work in other languages and alphabets, after that, I wouldn't make any changes mm. right away, right? Maybe, you know, make sure that the electricity works, make sure that, you know, you can do it in metrics and not just in feet and inches, stuff like that. But... I don't necessarily recommend to people that they make a hundred products for mm. different markets or they make multiple changes to the product. But your systems in the company, if you're not willing to change those systems in the company, you don't deserve to grow. Right. Because if you come and you say, Well, I'm, you know, I want to stay in my comfort. I want to, I want money, but I want to stay in my comfort zone. Well, you, you can't have it both ways, right? You, you have to be willing to step out of your comfort zone. Now, I, I've, I'm a firm believer in not necessarily changing the product a lot because I think that can end up being something that becomes very mm -hmm. expensive to come. Exactly. But your systems, your willingness to be flexible. Um, look, I used to have this guy who worked for me who was an HR nightmare, right? But he was a fantastic sales guy, right? And the problem was, and I used to say to him, I said, you can make jokes like that in your home market. You can't make jokes like that in headquarters. You can't talk like that in headquarters. You can't dress like that in headquarters, right? I would say, say stuff like that to him. But I had people in my company who were kind of like, I had VPs of, of, of uh, you know, senior people in the company who were telling me all the time, you have to fire him. He doesn't fit in with our corporate culture. And I said, look, He brings us in business from the Middle East. Nobody who fits in with our culture is going to sell as much as he does in his country. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. So we have to accept that we're going to have people who make us uncomfortable. And I'm going to make sure he doesn't, you know, proposition the secretaries. I'm going to make sure he doesn't do any, any real problems with HR. I'm going to keep him away from, from making problems But we can't fire him because we don't like him. He is good at his job, and his job is selling to people in his culture. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Right? And you have to be willing to accept that. Which, right? you know, that, that's the thing, because we can't... Uh, I was just saying, which actually, um, people is one of the toughest challenges you have to face when you want to expand, right? Because 
different cultures and therefore you have to also not i would say when whenever you're you're hiring someone like i think it's difficult and you are biased because you want to compare what you already know with the type of people that are getting in next to conquer new countries and automatically like you think oh this person is a little bit different i don't understand mm-hmm. and and that's i think where you're coming from right yeah, that's that's exactly it right you know we need to be willing i mean yeah a lot of americans are uncomfortable working for instance with muslims who are very obviously muslims right uh a lot a lot of americans are racist a lot of people in general around the world are racist right so they don't necessarily feel comfortable and they want they feel much more comfortable working with somebody who looks like the guy they went to college with right um but you can't do that you have to work with people who are going to be able to close in terms of sales in terms of international sales you have to be willing to work with people who are going to be able to close business in their own cultures and sometimes those people don't look like the people you want to take home to have dinner with your family right and that's just the way it works and and you have to be willing to work to, to you know to go with that culture i i find it really interesting what you just said that zack because um one of my guests uh, a few weeks ago said to hire i would say uh, any person in my international team i always ask myself this question would i go and grab a beer with that person anytime and if the answer is no then i usually don't go with it <laughs> i'll so I'll be very frank and please <laughs> was this person a salesperson or was this person something else It's it, this person has become uh, a salesperson but then I think uh he had also like a, a background a little bit more techy uh, originally he's you know he's from an uh, engineering background Yeah the, the, so uh Simon Senek Uh, who we all, you know, very famous guru, everybody knows his stuff. He has a quote where he says something like, companies shouldn't hire to get a task done. Companies should hire to fit with their culture. And I like to say that's because Simon Sinek was never a sales guy. Uh, because I hire to get a task done, mm-hmm. right? I'm, my task is to sell for the company. Mm-hmm. If I sell enough for the company, we get more sale, we get more mm-hmm. people, right? If you sell enough for a company in America, like if you expand international sales, maybe you add 50 or 100 manufacturing jobs. Those are well-paying jobs for non-college educated people, and I feel very pr- proud when I can help a client add 50 uh, 50 manufacturing jobs to mm-hmm. their factory. Okay? Now, If the way to do that is to hire a sales guy who nobody wants to have a beer with, I'd rather do that, right? And that's the way I look at it. Um I have I've had people say really unpleasant things to me over uh-huh. the years that I don't necessarily like. But and, and I'll tell you what, there are things that I draw a line on. Like I'm not going to let somebody who works for me uh sexually harass somebody. I'm not going to let somebody who works for me say something racist in 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 a forum or something like that. Right? There are lines that I I won't draw I I draw. 
But if I personally don't like them, but he closes business for my company, I'm going to hire him and I'm going to take really good care of him because I need to get, I need to get that task done. And I might not be able to find somebody in that market who can get that task done. And that's just the way it is. And I believe I'm almost going to say that if you disagree with me on that, you're wrong (laughs) because I, I think it's very important with that because there, you know, it's very easy. I can find a guy who went to Yale, who's, who's Lily white, who lives in, uh, in Dubai, who will tell me he's a sales guy, but I know he's not going to sell anywhere near as much as the Egyptian. No, of course, of course, of course. And, uh, and it's not a a matter of, uh, of hiring people alike. It's more, um, where is the limits with the culture afterwards, right? You you talk about like culture. So it's more like, uh, 100% to hire, you know, someone like locally, but you know, even we, when you consider like local people, like there are differences, right. In terms of like personalities, behavior, just because there are people. And in that sense, in, oh, yeah. in that sense, you still have right, right like true. to have this like limit saying, okay, this person is going to be different, but still, you know, like it's not so far from the company's culture that actually like no one can work with that person. If you see what I mean. Oh, no, I, I, I get that. But I would say part of my job, so, so I'll, I'll, I'll elaborate mm. on this, right? I had this guy who worked for me and I once wrote him a letter, which I called 21 reasons I would have to fire uh-huh. you. And I wrote it to him. I said, if you do this, I will have to fire you. If you do this, I will have to fire you. If you do this, I will have to fire you, right? Because... I was really scared that he was going to break HR rules, right? Now, the guy was a fantastic performer, and within a few years, he really learned to work for an American company. But he literally, like I I went on a business trip with a senior female engineer, MBA, senior executive, and we go into the meeting and he says, oh, great. It's not, it's good you're here. You can watch my children while we have our meeting. Oh, my God. And he sent his children over to hang out with this woman, right? And I said to him, I said, no, you can't oh do my God. that. And he's like, but she's a woman. I said, no, she is a VP, right? Now, <laughs> two years later, he, he, he knew that he couldn't do that. But he was a fantastic performer, right? So, so my job as the, as the head of international sales is to make sure that he doesn't do something stupid, but my job is also to make sure he produces. Of course. Okay. So, right. And maybe I could have found somebody who wasn't quite as much of a chauvinist who could also sell, but I'm not sure I could have. Right. So, you know, that my job is to be that buffer in my opinion to some okay extent. buffer and finding the right balance i think this is where we definitely <laughs> agree on on having the right capable people to actually right. do the job and that fit with the company or at least i would say the right. the right foundations to at some point you know with a few adjustments like be the right fit i i think we can find agreement on that um <laughs> perfect well thanks a lot zach you know it, it was uh, very interesting like to to learn your perspectives about how companies should look at uh, going international you know and finding maybe opportunities in markets that are often 
underlooked at. Um, perhaps let's move to that last section of every episode, which is the oops, my bad time. Whoops, my bad. It's a few minutes for the guests at the end of, uh, of each episode to share one big mistake or one setback that has occurred during a country's opening mission. You've been sharing a few examples with us, but perhaps if you have another one in mind, you know that we could that we could learn from that you had to go through yourself when you tried to open, for instance, one of the countries in 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 Africa or any other emerging markets. I'll, I'll tell you probably the biggest setback that I really still regret in life was I was working for a company. And um, it, it was a relatively big, big, well, you know, the $200, $250 million revenue type company. And we were looking at getting into Japan. And I felt that we had a fantastic possible market in Japan. And uh, the first time I went to, to meet with people in Japan and to look at the market, I came back and I said, there is one very specific specification. We have to be able to uh, change our language to work in Japanese. And if we can't do that, there's no sense in even looking at the Japanese market. And I sat down with people from our engineering department and we talked about it. And they said, okay, we're willing to, you know, if the, if the market is worth this much money, we're willing to commit that we can do this. Great. Mm -hmm. And then we went through months of discussions and work on this. And as we move forward and really got advanced with this, then basically somebody else from engineering came back and said, Oh no, we, we, you know, we, we've relooked at the cost of this and we can't do it. Um, you know, so if we had known this from the beginning, we wouldn't have gone down this pathway, uh -huh. but we ended up wasting a huge amount of money and effort Uh, you know, without really any chance for success. So I'd say, you know, that was probably my biggest setback in terms of entering a new market that I ever had was, um, you know, looking at it back now, I think I would have probably really made sure that we had uh, see the, you know, the, the CEO sign off on the fact that we were going to make these changes mm -hmm. in the market was was worthwhile and we wanted to go into the market but so that's my big <laughs> all right so slash setback, you know? getting getting the sign off of the ceo uh, with uh, big decisions then regarding uh global expansion <laughs> yeah you know especially when you know for sure what you have to do to get into mm -hmm. the market you know if you can identify that you have to make sure that you're willing to do that because if you're not then everything else is wasted Absolutely. And time being of the essence here. <laughs> exactly. Time and energy and, and money, everything's, you know, these are, are irreplaceable assets. Absolutely. Right? Well, thanks a lot, Zach, again, for all your insights in this episode. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, of course. It was my pleasure. And I guess just have to tell you until next time now. Yep. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening until the end. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe to not miss the next one. And please share it with two people in your network. This is how this podcast gets more visibility and can help more of us to work on international markets. See you soon.